You know, I like that clip we just saw a moment ago. Because we've had a theme in our church in 2016 about living free. How many think it's important to live free? I would argue that most people today are not living free. And that's because sin has a way of entangling our lives and creating bondage and heartache and brokenness in our life. And when we were in Hawaii this week, you know, some of you go, Pastor, what, what is it like to be a pastor on vacation? Well, it's very fascinating because, you know, I still relate to people. And you never, you, 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 you're, it's just so much a part of you. We're sitting down having breakfast, and this guy comes up, and he's trying to sell surf lessons to us. He's probably, you know, I'd say late 30s, I'd say early 40s. And, you know, we start chatting, and eventually it comes out, and he says that he's a Christian. I said, great, we're Christians too. He says, I knew you guys were Christians. Would you pray for me? And then he begins to tell me a bit of his story. You know, what's going on in his life, and... Uh, so I listened to his story. He's in a relationship. It's not going well. And, you know, how many know I'm already becoming the pastor again? You know, this is what I'm trying to get a vacation from. But so he pours out his heart, and my family are we're sitting there listening about this relationship that he's having with this lady, and things are really not going good in this situation at all. Not one iota. And so finally I say to him, you know, I'm actually a pastor. He goes, oh my. He said, this is even better. So, <laughs> you know, so he wants us to pray. And I said, yes, I'm going to pray with you. But I want to say something to you. I said, the relationship that you are in is not healthy. It was not a healthy relationship. But I said, you're so emotionally connected it's hard for you to walk away. They're not married. You have to understand this. And this other individual is really wondering if they want to serve God or not. And I said, look, if you really want to serve God, you cannot be linking up with someone who doesn't know where they want to go with God. It's just, it's, you know, and there was all kinds of other issues that he went into, and I'm not going to describe them all. But I shared with him, I said, listen, you know what, if you pursue this relationship, which I know you want to, see, I know people, I know you want to, what I'm gonna promise you is more heartache. That's all that will come from this relationship. And you have to decide. You know, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna decide that, you know what, as painful as it is, am I gonna end this unhealthy relationship and move forward with my relationship with God or am I going to continue to waffle and struggle in this situation? I will pray for you. I will even pray for this young woman that she'll give her life to Christ, really give her life to Christ, you know, and really be set free and really pursue God. But I said, unless she chooses to do that, you're going to continue to experience this level of pain in your life. You know, in the movie Nuremberg, it's about a series of trials held in Nuremberg, Germany, said in 1945 and 46. Many of us know the context. And, and really what I'm talking about is how does sin find place in our lives? Where does it really start? Why is it that we can be, at some point in our life, so passionate about our relationship with Christ, but then eventually it just kind of fizzles 
and, and fades, and, and we have the struggling, even like this young man that I met in Hawaii last week. These Nazi leaders were being tried as war criminals. And we know the story. Some of us have been to Israel. Some of us have been to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. We've seen, you know, the story of six million Jews being destroyed by this, you know, ungodly uh, government. And in one scene, one of the Nazi defendants is attempting to explain his actions to an army psychologist. Maybe some of you have seen the movie. And he's trying to justify his actions and explain that he literally had turned over his diary to the American military voluntarily. And as he says, that diary proves that I tried to resign as the governor general of Poland and I did not approve of the persecution of the Jews. And he said, after reading my diary, they will know that what was in my heart. And this is a little game that you and I sometimes play. You know, we may not be doing the right thing, but we say to ourselves, but deep down inside, this is where I'm really at. They'll understand that the orders I signed were not my desire. But you know, the psychologist kind of presses this guy and he says, well, how do you explain it? You know, I don't mean legally. I'm not a lawyer or a judge. He says, I just mean, how do you live with yourself? How do you explain this to yourself? And he says, I don't know. It's as though I'm two people, he said. The man you see here and the other man, that Nazi leader. And he continued. He says, I wonder how the Nazi leader could do such things. And I look at him and say, you're a terrible man. And then the psychologist, again pressing him, says, well, what does he say? What do you say back? And he said, I just wanted to keep my job. That was his justification for being involved in exterminating other people's lives. I just wanted to keep my job. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, men do not differ much about what things, things they call evils, but they do differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. It's an amazing thing that we can start justifying. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm not trying to make us feel bad today, but I am trying to bring an awareness. I was laying down yesterday, I woke up, I had this one thought in my mind. What is really happening in our world today? Why are we at the place we are as Canadians in our nation? Why is it we are at a place where there's so much evil happening around us and it just seems like there's evil everywhere and it seems like what is happening is we're normalizing sin today. And one word came to my mind or one phrase came to my mind. We've tolerated evil. We've tolerated evil. But it goes deeper than that. You know, it's so easy for us to say, yeah, I don't like what's going on and I don't agree with the evil around us. And it's easy for us to stand up and say, speak out against the evil around us. But the question I want to raise today is, what about the evil within us? Do I tolerate the evil within my own soul? You know, compromise is really about trust. Do we really trust God to provide for us, to protect us, to bless us, to guide us? Or do we just take things into our own hands because, you know, really, deep down inside, we have a hard time trusting God. Compromise is about going our own way, taking things into our own hands apart from God. And when we do that, it always brings 
uh, a lot of pain for ourselves and for others. I think all of us have had moments in our lives where we've strayed from the heart of the Father, where we've tried to live our own life, and as a result, we've found ourselves a little distant. There's a lack of intimacy with God. You know, I was in uh, New Hope Church in Hawaii last Sunday, and Wayne Cordero, very famous pastor in Hawaii, probably pastors the largest church on the islands, and he's got all these branch works, and he was sharing a message on, you know, this idea of, he called it the torque of God, really wrestling with God. And he said something in that sermon, really, really spoken in my own spirit. He said, you know, the biggest concern that Moses had and the biggest concern that you know, David had after he had sinned is, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, that the, what makes you and I distinctly unique among all the people on the planet is that you and I are people of God's presence. And what he argued in his sermon is, is that even though God will still love us and we heard that and we sung it and it's true, but sometimes God has to back away from us because, you know, we're doing our own thing. And if we keep, you know, walking with God, says, I have to back away because you're a stiff-necked people. And we're just saying that to Israel. And he said, and if I stay with you, you're going to destroy yourselves because you're going to find yourself fighting against me, fighting against God. And isn't that true that a lot of times in our lives, that's what we find ourselves doing. We're actually battling against God. And the only way we can address this issue of you know, compromise or spiritual regression or backsliding, whatever word you want to frame it, it comes down to simply that we have to put things in order in our lives. We have to get our soul in order. We have to get our house in order. Because we never know what's about to happen in the, in the future. And I was just reading uh, this morning this whole idea of uh, the storms. Remember Jesus said, you know, those that hear my words and do them are like building a house that's solid. And when the storms come, the house stands. And then it says the people who hear my words but don't do them, when the storms come, those houses crater. They collapse. They're crushed. Do you know what thought struck me? Storms come. The storms come to the righteous and to the unrighteous. Storms come to the people who are doing the right thing and people who are not doing the right thing. Storms are a part of life. God allows testings to come into all of our lives. And it's not because he doesn't love us. But if you and I want to stand and be strong when the storms come, it only, it only will come about if you and I are actually not only hearing God's word, but we become doers of it. And that's what brings strength into our lives when the testings come. One of the most disheartening things is to witness people who once had a vital relationship with God struggle and have no vitality left in their lives. How many have witnessed that? And isn't that a grievous thing? Doesn't it bring tears to your eyes? It does me. It, it grieves me. And, you know, I was thinking about this text from the book of Nehemiah chapter 13, and that's our text this morning. I'm going to have you turn there. Nehemiah chapter 13. Think about what happened. Nehemiah, Ezra, they come to the city of Jerusalem. They build the walls. They preach the word. There's revival. People are, hearts are set on fire. You cannot read chapters 8 through 10 and not see that. And then the Bible says Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to Persia. And while Nehemiah is gone, the people regress. And so when we come to chapter 13, what we have is Nehemiah coming back, you know, anticipating this vibrant, thriving, spiritually alive community. And what he runs into 
is problem after problem after problem after problem. Let me give you the four things in chapter 13 here he had to deal with, and then we'll apply it to our lives. And, and by the way, let me just before I get there say this. Um, you know, the church, according to Jay McConville, says the church can take nothing for granted. He says it's never reformed once and for all, but rather as the reformers in the 16th century knew, they knew this, sempra reformata, which means needing to be reformed. In other words, because of the perversity and inconsistency within human beings, you and I need constant reformation. In other words, it's very easy for us to drift. It's very easy for us to neglect good things. It's very easy to have advanced and then find ourselves retreating. And if we're going to address the evils of our day, it has to begin with addressing the evils within our souls. Because if we don't address it within ourselves, we're not going to be able to address anything. Let me show the four things he had to deal with. First of all, the high priest, Eliashib had compromised by letting the enemy of God's people move into the temple. The guy that they were fighting against in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is now living in the temple. How many go, that's kind of a sad, sad, sad indictment. Number two, he had to address the lack of support for the work of God because the enemy had moved in. It says all the Levites and priests were out working in the fields. So the temple and the worship was all being neglected. God was now forgotten. Number three, he had to address the problem of Sabbath violations. They were so consumed with the economy that they worked day and night. They, they could have cared less about the things of God. And finally, he had to address the problems of intermarriage. In other words, you know, they were actually marrying into people of other ethnic backgrounds who had no knowledge of God and who worshipped pagan gods. And so they were totally compromised. How many think that's kind of a shocking thing to go from revival to absolute compromised? And that's the picture. You know, Jesus said something very profound in Mark chapter 9, and, and it says this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. What is Jesus basically saying? He says, you know, when our light is, is dim, we're no longer illuminating those around us. Compromise distorts and diminishes us so we have no impact and no effectiveness. Compromise keeps people from reaching their full potential of God's purpose for their life. Do you know when God designed you in your mother's womb? We just sang that. And by the way, I believe that. I don't believe one person's an accident. I believe everyone in this room has been designed by Almighty God back into your mother's womb. God allowed certain DNA to be put together and he has a divine purpose for every life. And what hinders us from reaching God's purposes for our lives, whatever those purposes may look like and be, is because sin has entered in and diminished us in some interesting way. So let's pick up the story, Nehemiah 13, to 3 On the day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted to the assembly of God, and because they had not met the Israelites, and this is the reason why, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, in other words, they were inhospitable, they had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them, remember that story, 
Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all those who were of foreign descent. Now, the rest of the chapter is the, descript, is the specific way they went about it. In other words, how were they going to respond to the fact that they had compromised? And so I, I want to just take a look at three areas we need to guard against compromise. And the first one is, is in our relationship to our Savior. What I'm speaking here is making sure that Christ is central in our lives. It means maintaining a vital relationship with God. And, and so what the enemy is trying to do is destroy this vitality we have with Christ. That's his goal. We need to understand that. However which way he can do it in our lives. And then Nehemiah 13, we discover that Tobiah, who could not do anything to impact the forward advance of God's agenda for the nation of Israel at that moment, now is camped inside of the temple. You know, think of him as a picture of Satan. The enemy of God's people. He, he cannot win against Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, and Ezra. But now in chapter 13, he's living inside the temple. You go, how in the world does that happen, Pastor? How does somebody who started out so good, you know, compromises to that degree where the enemy is in control? Well, look at verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, he was closely associated with Tobiah. As a matter of fact, he's intermarried with him. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king and sometime later, I had asked his permission. See, Nehemiah had gone in the 20th year. So this is 12 years later now. He's, he's gone from uh, Jerusalem. And he, then he said, he must have heard something. And he said, I, I want to go back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Here the courts are being desecrated. You know, they're, 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 this is not the purpose for which the temple was built. So how does that speak to our situation? Well, let me ask the question this way. Is, you know, when we think of the temple of God today, what do you think of immediately? Where, where is the temple of God today? It's in us. Our bodies are the temples of God. So you and I, as a New Testament believer, read the story. We have to say, okay, we, we, we can't relate to the physical, empirical temple that was built in Jerusalem, but there's principles I can pull from the story and bring it back to where I'm living today. So our body is the dwelling of God. And so this is now the temple. This is the beauty of the New Testament. The temple is not located in one spot. The temple is wherever you and I go because God says, I'm going to dwell inside of you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to be with you always. What an amazing thing. Our bodies are now the temple of the living God. We have access to God. We have communion with God. But there's a spiritual battle going on. Let me ask the question, where is that battle happening? In our mind. That's exactly right. The spiritual battle that's going on every single minute is going on in your mind. 
Now let me just read a few scriptures to bear this out. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. For, we, for though we live in this world, this earthly world, we do not wage war as the world does. How does the world wage war? Bombs, guns, right? You know, violence, aggression. He goes, no, we don't wage war like that. He says, rather, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So what are the spiritual weapons that you and I have? Prayer. The word of God. Okay, those are some of the things. Now, he says they have power to do what? To demolish the strongholds. Now, stronghold, that's an interesting term. So where is the devil trying to create strongholds? In our minds. In our temple. Tobiah is trying to live in the temple. The enemy is trying to live in our minds. We demolish arguments. Oh, this is interesting. Because didn't the devil, who was now in a serpent form in the garden, say, has God really said this? And isn't that how the enemy comes to our minds and says, is that really what the Bible means? Is that really what you should be doing? And we're being challenged. Now it says, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Wow. How many go, I don't do that, Pastor. I just let my mind run wild. Well, you can't do that. And what I'm saying is when thoughts come into your mind that you know are not good, not godly, not pure, not holy, what are we supposed to do with those things? We're supposed to take them captive. We're supposed to say, this is not a right thought. This does not belong to me. This is actually a fiery dart of the enemy. i got to put this down. I have to know the Bible well enough to know that, number one, that thought is wrong, and number two, I need to replace that thought with another Bible verse that says this is the way I should be behaving. This is the thought I should be having, right? That's exactly right. Okay, let me move on. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what their nature desires. So let's take a look at what do we desire. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Okay, so now there's two desires going on. How many have ever felt a little tug, a little wrestling match inside of your soul? Anybody ever felt that? Little battle going on inside your soul? You know, what I want and what I think God wants, and sometimes they're different. How many have ever experienced that? I've had moments like that in my life where I had to sit down and say, okay, this is what I want. It's, and sometimes it was not even necessarily a sinful want, okay? I want to point this out to you. But I knew in my mind God didn't want me to do that. How'd you know that, Pastor? Because I, God wanted me to do something different. He wanted me to discipline my life in a different way. He wanted to use my time in a different way. So a lot of times as Christians, some of the things we're doing that we go, well, that's not wrong. I go, yeah, you're right, it's not wrong, but does God really want you to be spending that much time doing that? So you've got to do a little more thinking. What does God really want you to be doing? Because we all have the same amount of time, Right? You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature. This is so beautiful. 
This is when you know you're a true Christian. The sinful nature is not controlling your life, but it's by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So there is a power living inside of you and me that is greater than our sinful nature. And isn't that good news? And I'm going to bring that out one more time, and you're going to find out how encouraging this really is. Because some of you have been struggling with things for a long time, but today God is going to set you free. You're going to learn something today that's going to help you become a free person. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. So listen, even though you say, well, that's what I want, but you go, that's not a rightful thing. I don't have an obligation to do that. It goes on to say, but if you live according to the sinful nature, what will happen to you? You'll die. You will die. Yeah, you say, no, I'm not dying. I'm still walking around. No, no but you've cut yourself off from the presence of God's active agency at work in your life. You've cut yourself off from the power and the presence of God in your life in an amazing way. And you're living in defeat. You're living in bondage. You're living in addiction. You're living with struggle. And God wants to deliver you from all of that. That's the good news. But if the Spirit, but if by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit, You put to death. Isn't this interesting? By the Spirit, you can't do this. By the Spirit, you put to death. The misdeeds of the body, you will live. Who's going to help you destroy your sinful nature? The Holy Spirit is. And this is the good news. You know what you need to say when you're praying, God, I've struggled with this. I can't get over this. But your word says that by your spirit, there's a power greater than me. And by your spirit, I will do this. And you will be free. Because it says so. Listen, now I'm just bringing into these texts. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is what? A temple. temple, That's right, of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. Well, we got to, you got to read that. One, everybody say it. You are not your own. That's, you know, some of us go, I'll do what I want. I'm going, you're not your own. You belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Wow. Matter of fact, that's worship. You know, how do we abuse our bodies? Oh, Pastor, you're going to do this? Yep. (laughs) Improper diet? I'm I'm meddling now. That's okay. We need to hear this, Pastor. Improper diet, lack of exercise, lack of sleep. We can make our bodily appetites become dictatorial in our lives. They start driving us. We have to become self-controlled. We have to take control of our bodily appetites. Okay? And God will help us. You say, yeah, but I struggle. I say, but the Spirit. You know, how, you know how I finally figured out how to fast. It took me a long time. Here's how I do it. Lord, I cannot fast. I have no desire to do it. 
I don't enjoy it. I'm being real honest. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you're going to have to help me to fast. And the moment I ask God for help, he helps me do it. He helps me do it. Things like overeating, sexual sins, and other addictions can drive us away from a living and life-bringing, life-giving, you know, honoring of God. The evil one has a strong hold on our minds and bodies through sinful addictions. So how did Nehemiah address the issues in the temple? You're going to like this. He threw Tobiah out. Yeah, he did. He just... He says, verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. We need to cast out of our lives any sin that defiles us. We need to be purified. How? By confessing and forsaking our sin. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, what's going to happen? He is faithful to do what? To forgive our sins and, I like the and part, and what? And purify us. We need to be purified. I love it. When we confess our sins, God says, I'll not only forgive it, I'm going to purify you. I like that part. And he is able to forgive our sins literally. He's able to take away our sins. Now, you have to get this picture in your mind. When you give up your sin, Jesus is going to take them away. It says so. Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. God is able to make us holy, not by our struggling will, but by his will. Listen to what Hebrews says. Here I am, I have come to do your will. That's that's what Jesus is saying. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He's talking about the covenants now. And by that will, whose will? Yeah, I, I, I helped you out. I put a little... You know, bracketed. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you whose will this is. Christ's will. It says, and by that will, Christ's will, we have been what? We have been made holy. So who makes you and I holy? Christ's will. Not your will. This isn't like I'm really disciplined. I have a, you know, a strong will. If you, you could have the weakest will in this room. But if you yield your will to Christ's will, you now have the will to become set apart for God's purposes. Because that's what it means to be holy. Is that encouraging? How many are going, you know, Pastor, I feel a little encouragement. I feel like, you know, today I've been struggling with things and I just don't seem to know how to overcome these things. But what you're saying to me today is that God's spirit and Christ's will is going to help me do the right thing. And I won't have to live a compromised life. How many say, I don't want to live a compromised life? Amen. I don't want to tolerate evil. I don't want to, I don't want to have sin normalized in my life. And I do not want to have sin normalized in my society. I want to be delivered from this stuff. And you say, why do you want to be delivered from evil? Or the evil one? Why? Because Satan only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. He's out to wreak havoc on the human race. And is he doing a good job of it? Unfortunately. But is God's grace greater than all of our sin? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on to the second area. And that's our relationship as it relates to stewardship. 
When we allow the enemy a central place in our lives, one of the first things that happens is our attitude towards finances. Do you know that? Boom, it happens immediately. Giving comes to a halt. You know, how many know that giving is always a spiritual issue? It's an issue of the heart. See, people don't understand this. My attitude towards what God blesses me with is really indicative of how close I am to God or not to God. And I'm not talking about just mechanistically giving. I'm talking about joyfully giving. I enjoy giving. Why? Because I, I get excited about blessing other people. You know, that's exciting. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, how many here you can say, I really love my family? I really love my family. Do you invest a lot in your family? Yes, yes you do, right? You don't, you don't mind spending money. You don't mind spending time. You're just investing. You know why? Your heart is there. You know, it's the same thing with the kingdom of God. You know, when I say to you guys, you know, I really love you guys. You go, really, Pastor? Yeah, I do, because I'm stewarding my life to give you the best of my life. Why? So I can honor God by doing that. But the more I do what God wants me to do by loving other people, the more I genuinely start loving other people. Isn't that amazing? You know, you, people sometimes are difficult to love. Come on now. Isn't that true? And, you know, people can hurt you. How many have ever been hurt by people? Every hand should be up. Or unless you're a bunch of liars or something. Or you've, or, or you've had an unusual life and you've never had one person hurt you. I'm just going to go, how did you get away with this? I'm going to talk to you after the service. I've not been my experience. I've, I've met a lot of people. It's not been their experience. So he says in verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What were they doing now? They were neglecting the house of God. They were neglecting the work of God. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their post. Because listen to what they had earlier said in chapter 10 when they're in the midst of revival. We will not neglect the house of God. Now, how many know it's easy to say that when we're on a spiritual high? But when we're living a compromised life, that's the first thing we start doing. Come on now. Of course it is. That's the way it works. Broken promises. So what are we to do about our broken promises to God? We ask God to forgive us and start fulfilling what we told him we do, right? Nehemiah corrects the problem by addressing the issues. Now, I'm going to just say this. Remaining silent about problems usually doesn't solve the problem. He confronted the people. Giving was restored. The work of God was restored. The workers were restored. Look at verse 12. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storeroom. So he kicks out to buy, and all of a sudden, the giving comes back into the storeroom. He says, I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Levi, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hannah, son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Do you know where we invest our lives tells me if we're really stewarding properly. You know, some of you may know the story of um, William Borden. I even shared it in our church one Sunday. I used it as an illustration. William Borden was born in a very affluent, I mean, like the top level of people living in the United States in the last century, like in the 1900s. And 
He rejected all of that. He went to Yale because he wanted to be a missionary. Studied at Yale. That was back in the day when they weren't quite as liberal. And he studied there, and they had revival in Yale under his leadership. He was just a student. He was so passionate in his relationship to God. He, he had literally surrendered everything, given up everything, pursued Christ 100% wholeheartedly. Listen, when you and I begin to serve God wholeheartedly, it's amazing how we affect the lives of other people. They had a revival in Yale. He left Yale. He could have actually taken over his father's huge company. He, he turned his back on that, went to Egypt, he wanted to minister to people who had of a Muslim persuasion. And after four months, he contracted sp uh, spinal meningitis and he died. People go, wow, what a wasted life. You know, there's actually a cemetery in Cairo, Egypt, and they have the tomb markers of missionaries there. And this is what his epitaph reads. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. How would you like to have that as an epitaph on your tombstone? Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for this kind of a life. Is that amazing? How many go, that's, that's stirring. It should do something inside of us. Stewardship extends to our serving. You know, how often do we allow our work to interfere with our, the day of worship and rest? You know, I, I'm not going to put anybody in the spot, but how many people, you know, in your own hearts and minds, you could say, I've put work above worship. I've put work not most of, some of you haven't, but some people, you know, work is higher priority, you know. We say we trust God, but really, I got to go to work. I won't go into that whole thing, but let me just go on here. And Nehemiah understood that and addressed the violation of the Sabbath principle. These guys are merchandising on the Sabbath. And I like what Jesus said, if you put God's kingdom first and his righteousness, all the other things you need in life will be added to you. In our text, Nehemiah redresses their failure to keep the Sabbath day holy, verses 15 to 22. You read about it, they're trying to sell. I'm not going to read all those verses, but um, he said, what's this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? And uh, he said, once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside the wall of Jerusalem. He closed the doors and wouldn't let them operate. Eventually people get the idea. You're not going to work on the Sunday here or Saturday or whatever day. Then it's a Sabbath, Saturday. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll lay my hands on you. In other words, I'm going to do some physical damage to you guys. He's the governor, by the way. He can do that. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. So how does this apply to us anyways? I know there's all these various viewpoints in the church on the Sabbath. You know, let me share, I think Timothy Keller frames it probably the best that I've ever read or thought about. He said, when Jesus comes along, Jesus is basically saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember reading that? Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he is our source of what Sabbath represents, which is what? Rest and peace. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste of the deep divine rest we need, and Jesus is the source of that shalom, that peace. At the end of Genesis 1, the account of God's creation of the world, God said he rested from his work. Remember reading that? He worked six days, he rested on the seventh. What does that mean? Does God mean that he got tired? No, he's not, he's not human. God's not a human being, okay? He's a spiritual being. 
The Father is. Anyways, Jesus, yeah, there's a humanity side. I get that. No, God doesn't get tired. So how could he rest? A different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work, so utterly satisfied that you can stop messing with it. You can rest from it. It's good. I don't need to add anything to it. I like that. Only when you can say about your work, I'm so happy with it, so satisfied, it is finished. Can you walk away? And when God finished creating the world, he said it's good and he rested. He has lived the life you should have lived. He has died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you and you can be satisfied with life. You know one of the reasons why we're so driven is that we're trying to find some sort of affirmation from God and from others. Did you know that? But you and I need to get to a point and say, you know what, it's, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay, lay a little secret in on you because I'm a little older than some of you. You can't please people. You'll never please everybody. If you're living for people's approval, you will live in a life of unrest because you will never be able to satisfy people. You have to come to the end of yourself and say, you know what, if I am doing what God's asked me to do, then I can rest in that. And when I'm trusting God for what he is doing, I can rest in that. And that's good enough. That's very freeing, by the way. Some of you need to be free because you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. Let me move on to the final one. And that's in the selection of a marriage partner. You know, here in Nehemiah, he, they were intermarrying. And I want to just say this, because a lot of people, this is, I'm going to say this, aside from giving your life to Jesus Christ, this is the biggest decision you will ever make. And we don't think about it deeply enough. I'm serious about this. We don't know what we're really doing. You know, this decision is going to shape your life. More than you'll, it, it'll, it'll cause more blessedness or more grief, depending on who you get married to. Here's a couple of things I'm going to tell you. Marry the most emotionally healthy person you can find. Number two, well, that's number two. Number one, marry the person that you know really loves Christ and has the fear of God in their soul. Because if that person wants to please Christ, you know that they're going to do a better job of loving you and caring for you than anybody else. That is the most important thing. You know, why did King Solomon go astray? He got married to a whole bunch of pagan women. That's what was happening here in the day of Nehemiah. Just keep reading the chapter. You know, he got so upset about this, Nehemiah. He literally started grabbing people by the beards, slapping them around. Now, I'm not saying that's the way we should address evil. Okay, don't do that. You know, but you can tell Nehemiah was a pretty intense personality. Just read the chapter. He was a governor, and it was a different time. Those are the two arguments I make, so don't copy that particular behavioral pattern. But in light of what Nehemiah was trying to accomplish, what was he trying to do? He was trying to say, listen to him, you need to retain who you are, your identity. We heard that today. Retaining your identity. How important is that? Very important. This is where 2 Corinthians comes along. This is a verse I think we ignore to our peril. 
It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, it doesn't mean not to have friendships with non-believers. I like non-believers. I have friendships with non-believers. Not saying that. When you're being yoked together, what does that mean? You're harnessed. You're in a relationship. Don't get yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? That's very powerful. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's another name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? He's saying, why in the world would you engage in a deep relationship with somebody who is you know, walking in a totally different mindset and a totally different course and they're walking towards darkness and you're walking towards light? What do you have in common with that person? And when we do that kind of stuff, it's an indictment against the believer because the believer really is more concerned about what's going on with this other person. They're more concerned about what's going on in society and they're far less concerned about what Christ is all about. Because when you're a true Christian, you're out of step with the world. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God and as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. You say, how does this, oh, let me just keep reading. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, touch no unclean thing, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. He's quoting from the Old Testament here. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, see, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So how does all this apply to me? I always say to my daughters, don't date a non-believer. Don't always listen. That's true. Not all your children are going to, you know, but I'll just say this. If you never date a non-believer, you won't marry one. No rocket science there. And by the way, we can fall in love with anybody. Because I'm in India, they do arranged marriages. And uh, they learn to love each other. So don't go down that path with me. A lot of what we're going on is that we get emotionally involved, we're physically attracted, but what sustains a marriage over decades has got to be more than physical attraction. It's got to be more than just, you know, social compatibility. It's got to be far deeper than that. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? You know all of the fighting that goes on in marriages? It's over values. I know this to be true. That's the whole issue. When you have different value systems, you're in conflict all the time. That's why you need to marry somebody who shares your values. You know, and just because someone goes to church, I tell my daughters, doesn't mean that they have the right value system. You know, you got to have a biblical worldview, not a cultural worldview. You got to have a heart after God. If I was single right now, I'd be taking extensive notes. I'd be going, best advice I ever heard in the church is when the pastor said, don't date a non-believer, and don't date anybody who's not really serious with God. Don't stay away from that. You're going to suffer. I'm just telling you, you're going to suffer. Yeah, but pastor, I, I became a believer since I'm married. Should I just divorce my husband now? No. If your husband is an unbeliever and is happy to be married to you, you have an obligation biblically to stay with that person. For his sake and for the sake 
for her sake and for the sake of the children. The Bible teaches very clearly that's what we need to do, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm actually quoting the Bible, but I'm paraphrasing it. So the reason why we compromise, here's the reason why. I'm gonna give it to you. Why do we tolerate evil in our lives? Why do we compromise? Here's the answer. Oh. Is we lack real faith and trust in God. That's the, that's the number one reason. We just don't believe God. And here's what I'm, I want you to think about. When we're more concerned about what God thinks than what others think, we'll be free to serve God in an uncompromising way. It's real simple. I'm simplifying it for us, okay? And by the way, these kind of people are deeply, you know, when we begin by not tolerating evil in our own lives before we address the evils around us, we're going to have an impact on people. And we're deeply, you know, these kind of people are going to become deeply concerned about the well-being of others, and they become a part of the solution to problems rather than the cause of them. Nehemiah was a dynamic leader because he did not tolerate evil. He started with himself, and he extended out. If we are ever going to have an impact on our world, we've got to take the same course. So I'm going to have a stand. We're going to close in prayer. Worship team is coming. I know I'm a couple minutes over, but this, this is so important that you understand this. You know, I was praying with our prayer team, my prayer team this morning, and praying for you this morning that God would do such a work in your heart. And with every eye closed right now, let me ask you this question. How many here can say, Pastor, I feel God speaking to me today. Raise your hand. Just raise your hand. I feel God speaking to me today. And he's talking to me about living an uncompromised life. That's what he's talking to you about. How many are saying, yep, he's talking to me about that, living an uncompromised life. And right now you're sitting here saying, you know what, I've allowed some things into my life. I've tolerated some things. You know, it's really easy for me to get upset about other people, but let's just look at ourselves, okay? Start with ourselves. And you're here today to say, Pastor, I want to have victory. I want to live an uncompromised life. I want to be set free. I want to have such an impact and an influence in people's lives around me because I have become a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You know, I was just reading this morning. Jesus said to the disciples, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Peter and the disciples did. They started hauling in a huge catch. Peter goes, I'm a sinful man. Immediately he recognized something unusual. There was a miracle that started happening. Because of the miracle, the Bible says right after that, I was reading in Mark's gospel. No, it was, no, it was Luke's gospel. It said they immediately left their entire business to follow Jesus. Why was that? Because Peter got convicted because of what Jesus had done. And he went all out. He, he sold out. The only way we're going to be sold out is that we believe that Jesus is greater than any need we have. I have to have complete trust that if I sell it 100%, God will take care of me. Can I tell you right now, for 40 years, 
God has taken care of me. I've just gone for it. Just go for it. God will take care of you. You have to trust him. He will do it. Will you ever get tested? Yes, you will. I already told you that in the sermon. You will be tested. But if you hear the word and do it, you will stand in the hour of testing. But if you only sit in church and hear the words and don't do them, the test will come, you will fail. And some of you go, yeah, that's my experience. I've had that experience. I want to invite you to come forward. I know we have another service, but a lot of you are going to leave right now. But I want some of you to come forward and say, you know what? Today is a new day for me. I've decided to live an uncompromised life. I'm going for it. 100%. I'm going to trust Christ. I want you to come forward right now, real quickly. An uncompromised life. I'm not going to tolerate evil in my life. I'm I'm going to ask God's spirit and God's will to help me overcome the addictions and the brokenness in my life. I want to go for it, Pastor. I don't want to tolerate any evil. You know, it's easy for me to be critical of other people. But usually what we're critical of are the things we're guilty of. Isn't that true? Yeah, we can see it so clearly because it's in us. We don't even sometimes realize. The thing that many times bothers you about another person, you're guilty of. Isn't that crazy? We just don't see it. So I'm going to pray with you right now. I want to believe God for a real work of grace today. Because you know what? Some of you are going to change your worlds. Matter of fact, I believe you're all going to do it. You're going to change your worlds, and it's all going to happen in a different level. And some of you are going to be very dynamic. This is going to be your turnaround day. This is your day like Peter. You know, I'm a sinful man, Lord, but then he left everything to follow Jesus. That's powerful. Is that powerful? That is powerful. And by the way, Peter was very powerful. God used him. Thousands of people got saved. Where Peter walked, even a shadow, people were healed. You know why? Because he had spiritual authority in his life. And it came from God, not from himself. So Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, they mean business. And I just pray today that you're going to set us free from all of these evils and all of these addictions and all of these things that we've been battling in our minds that have hindered us from trusting you fully, Father. I pray today that you're going to release these, your servants, oh God, to serve you in a dynamic, uncompromising, fully devoted manner, Father. And Lord, I pray right now that you are going to use them in ways they've never dreamed because when you designed them in their mother's womb, you had a purpose. And I pray from this day forward, nothing will keep them from your divine purposes for their life, Father. I pray that you are going to move them in ways they've never moved before. You're going to use them in ways they've never been used before, Father. You're going to use these, your children, oh God, and they're going to have an amazing impact in their families, in their community, in our world. I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.